Welcome to the sermon webcast of Good News Lutheran Church of Mount Horeb, Wisconsin. The following sermon was preached on Sunday, February 18th, 2018, on the basis of Genesis 22, verses 1 through 18. Do you know who absolutely loves this Bible story that is in front of us today? Atheists and skeptics and cynics and and basically anyone who is critical of what the Bible says. Why? Well, as atheist author Richard Dawkins put it, this disgraceful story is an example simultaneously of child abuse of bullying in two asymmetrical power relationships. He's talking about God and Abraham, and then Abraham and his son Isaac, and the first recorded use of the Nuremberg defense. That's a line of defense that basically says that any behavior is excusable if it is being done at the command of a superior officer. This is the defense that was given by many members of the Nazi party when they were put on trial following World War II for the part that they played in the Holocaust. He concludes, I'm sorry, he concludes, yet this legend, this story, is one of the great foundational myths of all three monotheistic religions. There you have it. Why do atheists and skeptics and cynics love this story so much, well, it so neatly captures everything that they think is wrong with religion, every reason that they have to criticize the Bible and criticize Christianity. I mean, after all, God puts a man to the test by telling him to murder his son. This is the perfect example of why men like Richard Dawkins would think that no reasonable person would ever believe in God, much less love and follow and be loyal to him. Now, if that's the case, if atheists love this story so much, or at least love to hate this story so much, it maybe shouldn't surprise us that sometimes we Christians might find this story a little bit troubling too. It might make us a little bit uncomfortable. It might be something that we sort of wish no one really ever knows about. Maybe it kind of gets lost in the shuffle. No one ever notices that it's there in the Bible. No one brings it up. No one certainly asks us about it. Or maybe at the very least that it's sort of this rare exception. It's the product of very unique circumstances and it's not the way that God normally acts. I mean, on the one hand, there's kind of this mental necessity of of figuring out and understanding why in the world would God command Abraham to do something that we all know so clearly is wrong. And on the other hand, from a much more practical standpoint, why would God put anyone to a test like this, submit them to such difficult and painful circumstances, and and does God do that a lot? Does he do that in general? Does he do that with us? Well, one of the things we're going to see today is that Richard Dawkins was right about one important thing. This is a story that we can't just kind of put off to the side or hope people forget about. This story is, in fact, foundational. There are principles at work in this story that really permeate everything that God does as he interacts with human beings, and not just back in Bible times, but including with us today. As we look at these actions of God, we're also going to see that that not only does God do things like this all the time, but it's not in any way any reason to criticize God. It's actually reason to praise God. 
as we start this series entitled Rethink Religion today, as we see how God's Word so often turns our assumptions about God upside down, here's what we're going to see that tests, tests just like this one, are examples of, not exceptions to, God's love for us. Now, how can that be the case? Everything about this test of Abraham seems to be strange, surprising, and unique. If you know anything about the story of Abraham and his son Isaac, you first of all know that Isaac was a very unique child. Abraham and Sarah thought that they were well past the age of ever being able to have children. God appeared to Abraham when he was 75 years old and told him that he was going to be having a son. It wasn't until 25 years later, when Abraham was 100 years old, that God finally delivered on that promise. And now, probably 20 to 25 additional years later, God appears to Abraham again and gives him this very strange, very surprising test. He says, Take your son, your only son, whom you love, and go to the region of Moriah. Sacrifice him there as a burnt offering on a mountain I will show you. Everything about that seems unique. But not when we boil it down to its bare essence. For reasons that I just mentioned, Abraham obviously loved Isaac a great deal. And in the very same way, God gives to us blessings that we naturally love a great deal. Things that we find great enjoyment and great delight in. Our spouse, our children, our lifestyle, our hobbies, our possessions, whatever the case might be. And yet, as much as we love all of those good gifts from God, God expects, just as he did with Abraham, that we would love him even more. When God gave us a list of Ten Commandments that he wanted us to follow, what was number one on the list? You shall have no other gods. When someone came and asked Jesus, what is the first and greatest commandment? What did Jesus say? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, and with all your mind. This isn't some rare exception in the case of Abraham. No matter how much we might love the good blessings that God puts into our lives, God wants us to love him more. And if we do that, it will, by its very definition, lead us to make sacrifices. Now, the idea of a father sacrificing his son might seem to be a little bit extreme. But consider the fact that this kind of thing happens, not just in the Bible, not just in a religious context, but in everyday life all the time. Consider the fact that for hundreds of years now, millions of Americans have been sacrificing their sons and daughters. Millions of Americans have sent off their sons and daughters to war and watched them die. Why? because of something they love so dearly. For the sake of freedom, for the sake of independence, for the sake of our nation. If you love something enough, it will inevitably lead you to make sacrifices by its very definition. And not only is all of that true, not only is that not just a a rare exception in the case of Abraham, but something that happens all the time, if and when it does happen in our lives, that we love God more than anything else, and that we make difficult and painful sacrifices as a result of it, believe it or not, it's actually for the good of everyone who's involved. Martin Luther once said that your God is simply nothing more than the person or the thing 
from which you expect the most good to come. So wherever you look, or to whomever you look, for joy, for satisfaction, for safety, for security, that is, for all intents and purposes, your God. And God knows full well that he is the only one who can provide those things to you. And so that's why he asks you to have no other gods besides him. God knows that when you look to someone or something else for those things, not only will you be disappointed, but whatever that person or thing is, it will be crushed. If you decide that you're going to take your big, beautiful, 10,000-pound luxury camper up north, for a lovely weekend of camping up in the woods, and you decide to haul it up there using your smart car, not only will that not bode very well for your camping trip, but it won't bode very well for your car either. See, it's so very easy for us to look for joy and satisfaction, for safety and security in, in our spouse, in our children, in our job, in our activities, in our possessions, But if and when we do, not only will those things disappoint us, but we will in the process crush them. As odd and as extreme as this sounds, not only was it a good thing for Abraham to love God more than he loved his son, it was actually a good thing for Isaac, for Abraham, to love God more than he loved his son. As extreme as this sounds, Isaac was better off dead than having a father who made him his God. And if you have ever seen parents, or you've ever even noticed in yourself the tendency to find your joy, to find your satisfaction in life, in your children, you know that this is true. You know how that can crush them. God knows that he is the only one who can deliver in full measure the joy, satisfaction, safety, and security that we desire. And so by administering these tasks, God ensures that we continue to look for those good things from the only one who can provide them for us. So are you ready to take the test? It might be fairly simple for us to sort of mentally think through and, and logically understand that when God administers these kinds of tests, when he asks us to love him above all things and, and even be willing to sacrifice as a result of that love, that that is in fact good for all who are involved. And yet, of course, the reality is that so often when we are the ones sitting in the classroom, when we are the ones sitting down at the desk to take God's test, so often we fail. Which kind of begs the question, how did Abraham pull it off? How did Abraham get up the very next morning, bright and early, not even waiting to read the morning paper or enjoy his third cup of delicious coffee, but early first thing in the morning, off he goes. How did he take each and every step of that three-day journey to the place God was showing him? How in the world did he put on his own son's back the wood that would eventually burn him up as part of the sacrifice? Maybe most surprising of all, how did Abraham, 125 years old, convince his 25-year-old son, who could no doubt outrun him, no doubt outmuscle him, how did Abraham apparently convince him to willingly get on that altar? All of it seems impossible. All of it seems surprising and rare, certainly not something that we could ever duplicate. One important detail helps us figure it out. 
See, before God had, had given Abraham this command, when God appeared to Abraham first and said, I'm going to turn you and Sarah into a great nation. You're going to have a family. You're going to have many descendants. He told Abraham specifically that this was going to happen through his son Isaac. And so even as Abraham carried out this incredibly difficult command, all the while he had God's promise that somehow Isaac would live. That somehow Isaac would live to get married and to have children of his own. That's why when they got close to the region where God was sending them, Abraham said to his servants, you guys stay here. Isaac and I are going to go ahead. We will worship and then we will come back. That's why when Isaac started to piece it all together and said, Dad, I I see the wood, I see the fire, but where's the lamb that we're going to need for the sacrifice? That's why Abraham said, the Lord will provide. That's why the writer to the Hebrews would eventually say this, By faith, Abraham, when God tested him, offered Isaac as a sacrifice. He who had embraced the promises of, was about to sacrifice his one and only son, even though God had said to him, it is through Isaac that your offspring will be reckoned. Abraham reasoned that God could even raise the dead. And so in a manner of speaking, he did receive Isaac back from death. Long before God put Abraham through this test, God himself had given Abraham a cheat sheet. God had given Abraham the answer. God had given him this promise. Now, not all the details, but the most important one. And so this test, yes, it was an opportunity to test Abraham's love for God, but it was also an opportunity for Abraham to test the promise that God had made, to test God's love for him. And you heard how God delivered, right? Just as Abraham was about to use that knife to slit the throat of his son Isaac, the angel of the Lord intervened and said, Abraham, don't lay a hand on the boy. And there, a ram caught in the thicket served as the substitute sacrifice so that Isaac's life was spared. That promise had enabled Abraham to trust that the Lord would provide. And when Abraham put that promise to the test, God passed with flying colors. You know, in a certain sense, we could say that many of the details of this story are nothing unique to Christianity. That that God, whoever he is, would expect us to love him above all things and, and that in the process of loving him above all things, we should even be willing to offer him sacrifices. It's kind of a common thread that ties its way through just about any religion that there might be. But what's unique about this story, what's unique about Christianity is how God gets the love that he demands. God knows that loving him above all things is the very best thing for all parties involved. How does he get it? Does he point his cosmic laser beam directly at us and simply demand it under threat of punishment? Does he send down the, the secret code for his cosmic vending machine so that if we press all the right buttons and do all the right things, all the right blessings are going to come showering down on us? No, when God demands that we love him above all things, the way that God gets that love is that he trots out his son. How does God get someone to pass this test? He, he sends his son to take the test as our substitute. Jesus goes out into the wilderness to face Satan for us, to have all of the kingdoms of the world dangled in front of him, 
and yet to perfectly maintain his love in God above all things, to worship God and serve him only. How does God get the love that he requires? He sends his son to be the substitute sacrifice for us. In fact, in the very same region where Abraham went, on a hill not very far away, Jesus became that substitute sacrifice, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Lamb who went under the knife for us, the Lamb who faced and was consumed by God's purifying fire so that we would be spared. Friends, how does God get the love that he requires? This is why this story is so foundational. It's not some exception. It's not some rare, extreme case. It's not something we can kind of just shove off into the corner and hope nobody notices. This is how God acts with us. This is how God deals with us. Even as he requires us to love him above all things, he himself produces that love. He himself provides that love by sending his son to be our substitute. So friends, when the time of testing comes, do as Abraham did. Don't look to yourself. Rather, look to the cheat sheet. Look to the answers that God has given. Look at the promises that he has provided and use those promises to trust that one way or another God will provide. Because in Jesus Christ, God has proven that no matter how many times you put his promises to the test, he will never fail. Amen. Thank you for listening. For more information about Good News Lutheran Church, visit www.goodnewslc.org.